Welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from Christian worldview. Today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyar as he explores the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. Please turn to Mark 4, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verse 1. We begin with the parable that the Lord told about a farmer planting seed in different kinds of soils. Later, we'll get to a mustard seed, what he said about that, and this is a fun chapter. And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Now, I've wondered how people could hear Jesus outdoors with the crowd by the sea, so when we were in Capernaum, we're near the synagogue, near the location, the traditional location of Peter's home. And we went to the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee and saw that from there the land slopes gently upward. And it does seem to be especially well suited to speak to the group. If the land is level, then your voice, the sound waves just go increasingly higher up and up over the crowd's head. But if the land is sloping upward, then as it'll bounce off the ground and it naturally goes upward, people can hear better. So it's a neat setting. Verse 2, Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. So it went so-so. <laughs> homonyms are interesting now in the lord's parable a farmer went out to plant seed and the seed as we find out is the word of god and the interpretation regards men's hearts that some are ready and eager to hear god and others are not so we'll see the varying results that the farmer achieves now a farmer can't really make a plant grow can he can he make it grow no all he can do is take the seed that he provided no take the seed that god provided and distribute it and that's like us we cannot make a person believe we can't compel a person to love god it would be meaningless to be able to make someone love god that's not reasonable so this is what Jesus is bringing our attention to. Verse 4, And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it, and birds will tend to do that, given the opportunity. So let's say a farmer is trying to make use of every bit of his land, and as he approaches the edge of his field, it's a bit windy, but he wants plants to grow everywhere, and so he's scattering the seed, and the wind blows some of it onto the road that's alongside his field. As a result, each seed is not camouflaged in rich soil like it might otherwise be, and it's easy for the birds to spot it and come along and eat up the seed. So the Lord continued in verse 5, Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. 
Now, every single plant is precious to this farmer, so he scattered seed even where it seemed there's not much soil. And plants want to grow. That's what they want to do. God designed plants so that they grow given the opportunity. And they'll use the resources that they have, their own genetic programming. They will use nutrients in the soil and in the air, fertilizer if they have any, sunlight itself they use, and water to grow. Well, how does a plant know which way is up? You plant a seed in a little bit of soil, not really enough to get a healthy plant, but it does start to grow upward. How does it know how to do that? Well, if you tune into Real Science Friday, you'd know. About a year ago, we did a show on how plants know which way is up, that they do know which way is up. How could they know that? They don't have a mind. Well, cells, just like in an animal or in a plant, are incredibly tiny. And cells, plant cells, manufacture these little entities that we'd call them anchors. They're called statoliths, from a Greek term for stone, statoliths. So a cell makes a statolith, and because it's heavy, it sinks to the bottom of the cell. And the cell has the programming required to draw a trajectory from the statolith as far as it can get within the cell, and that's the direction of up. So the plant knows to grow the stem up and the roots down. Now, when we plant a seed, we don't tend to think, how's it going to know which way is up, which way is down? But God is the engineer. He's the designer, the intelligent designer. And it wouldn't work for plants to grow just randomly in every direction because half of all plants would die because they'd be growing the wrong way. So God knows how to solve those kinds of technical problems. And a plant wants to grow, and it will use the resources it has available to grow But if it can't grow in a certain direction, it'll use those resources to grow in another direction. And if it can't send roots down, then the resources it would have to put into its root system is going to go into the stalk and the leaves, the branches, and it's going to be a shallow root plant, and it will probably die. Verse 6. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no crop. Recall we've often talked about the original paradise where there were no weeds, no thorns and thistles, and that's because God gave Adam and Eve a perfect world to live on where the world provided its sustenance to them. And as long as they're not sinful... As long as they are not selfish, it will not hurt them to have the sustenance given from the dust of the ground where their food literally grows on trees. We say, well, it doesn't grow on trees. For Adam and Eve, it did grow on trees, and they just pluck what they need to survive. Well, because they sinned, God then cursed the ground for man's sake. Because with sin in our lives, we would be selfish and we would need to need one another. So somebody wins the lottery 
all of a sudden, they don't need anybody. And quite often, they end up with a divorce. Or somebody becomes a famous rock star or a movie star. They have a lot of money. Pretty soon, they don't need anybody. So they gradually alienate themselves, like Mel Gibson has done, alienated himself from virtually the entire world. And with the passion of the Christ, he funded that movie himself, and it brought in about a billion dollars. So he's wildly wealthy. He doesn't need anybody. So Adam and Eve, with the earth giving to them its sustenance, they wouldn't need anybody. They wouldn't need one another. And if you don't need one another, then you'll tend to get mad at each other and walk away. So God, for women, God took the pregnancy of, I believe, six months originally. And because a baby now would be born in what became a hostile world with a difficult ecosystem and environment, the babies would be so tiny at six months, they'd have a hard time surviving. So he multiplied their pregnancy so that the gestation would be nine months, nine being a number of judgment, whereas six was a number for man, and in six days a man shall labor, and after six months, I believe a woman would have given birth, and it would not have hurt like it hurts when you give birth to a nine-pound monster who's been growing for nine months. So God, because of sin, brought about the consequences that were necessary for mankind to survive in the midst of the sinful world that we are responsible for being here. So these thorns and thistles, Adam would not have had to deal with them if he had not sinned, and we wouldn't either, but mankind has rebelled. Verse 8, But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Wow, is it practical that farmers could get an increase like that? Thirty, sixty, even a hundredfold? Well, if we use corn as an example, uh, that's a, a good one because we're very familiar with eating corn on the cob. And each kernel of corn is a seed. You plant it in the ground, and you get a corn stalk and a, a corn plant. Now, a typical ear of corn has about 16 rows, and if you count all the kernels, an ear will have between 500 and 1,200 kernels on one ear of corn, and average in America about 800 kernels on a single ear. Now, I have that on good authority. It's from the Iowa Corn Growers Association. And if anybody would know, they would know. Now, how many cobs or ears of corn does the average plant have? The answer is zero. Most plants don't grow corn, like apple trees. <laughs> but the average corn plant is designed in America by breeding to have one ear of corn. Now, if you are growing baby corn, you could have two or three, and you could have more than one ear of corn, but their goal is to maximize the corn harvest, and it turns out if you have more than one ear on a single plant, then you're not maximizing the amount of corn you get. So by adjusting the spacing between the plants 
and the fertilizer, how much nutrients are available, and how much water each plant has, they can fine-tune their crop so that they get one ear of corn per plant. That's pretty neat that men have the ability to understand at some level how God has designed plants, for example, and then use that to our benefit. So let's say you have a single kernel. Somebody gave it to you. You're poor, you have a little piece of land, and somebody gives you one kernel of corn and you plant it, then at the end of the season, you could have 800 of those things. So in one season, you went from one to 800. If you plant those again a year later, you could have 640,000 kernels. And if you plant them again, you could have about half a billion kernels. So in a few years, we could see the way God provided for his children that he really has looked to make sure that we can take care of ourselves. He made sure of that in the creation. So Jesus said, if the seed falls on good ground, it could yield a bountiful harvest. Verse 9, and he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So Jesus basically is speaking in code because there are people who hate him. Regardless of what he tells them, they hate him. And so he speaks in a way that those who want to know what God's message is for them will be able to hear it, and those who don't want to know will think it's all ridiculous. And it's a little bit scary to think that that was me before I became a believer. I remember reading in the Bible, and so much of it didn't make any sense. And in September of 1973, I went on a campus life retreat, and I became a believer listening to a Ron Hutchcraft speak, and I remember going home that weekend and reading the book of James. I thought, I'm going to read this entire book of the Bible, so I picked a short one. I read James, and I thought, boy, that made perfect sense. Why is it that a few days ago I'd read the Bible and it's just a mystery, and now I'm reading it and it's, it makes sense? And the Bible is spiritually discerned, so that if someone is in rebellion against God, they're going to have a hard time reading and appreciating God's Word. If you love God, you're going to want to. You'll have a desire to understand what He's saying. So as you read the Scriptures, it's going to make more sense to us. Then the Lord quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, which is an absolutely fascinating part of Scripture. And He says, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Now, for a Calvinist, they're in their heyday when they get verses like this, because they say, see, God does not want people who are not elect to believe, and of course, they'll see it that way. 
But for those who are not Calvinist, it's very easy for us to see that God wants everyone to believe. Jesus is lifted up so that he might draw all men to him. Those who seek shall find. Those who knock, the door will be opened. God is doing everything he could think to do to draw people and to reach people. But regardless of all his efforts, there are many who despise him, and he's even astonished at their unbelief, as we see in this very gospel, that Jesus says that he's astonished at their unbelief. He marvels at their unbelief. Why is it that with all God has done, with the scriptures, with his mighty works, still they don't believe? So in that context, where there are people who reject him regardless of what he does for them or tries to reach them, then God begins to deal with them as you would deal with the enemy. And you don't always reveal your hand to the enemy. So you have, like if you're fighting World War II, you have a code which the Allies know, which the Axis does not know. And that's a sad necessity of a world where one side wants to destroy the other side. Verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The Lord's thinking, I have a lot where these have come from. This one is pretty straightforward. And if you don't get this, we're in trouble because this is supposed to confuse the unbelievers, not you guys. So stay with me here. Verse 14, the sower sows the word, the word of God. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Now, is that literally necessary for each person who rejects what he hears? Is it only that Satan has come? No, Satan is real. Satan is the leader of the rebellion against God. But human beings are really good at unbelief, whether or not Satan is personally immediately available. There's one Satan, and there are billions of human beings. About seven billion human beings, one Satan. It took Michael the archangel three weeks to get from one location to another location because he was impeded with spiritual warfare. So Satan is not omniscient. Just like Mary is not omniscient, she can't hear everyone's prayer simultaneously. She's not omniscient or omnipresent. So too Satan. He doesn't know necessarily when one Christian is witnessing to a neighbor who's an unbeliever. But there are also demons. And demons are involved directly in the spiritual battle. And we have part of us, a component of us, where we are body, soul, and spirit and angels, even fallen angels, are spirit beings. And it is very difficult for us to understand how a human being is composed. If we look at almost any aspect of ultimate reality, physics, uh, biology, astronomy, it's incredibly perplexing. So how is it that a spirit being can somehow influence us 
to tempt us or to discourage us from taking God's Word seriously. How can they do that? I'm not sure how. But maybe they have a way to fan into flame our pride or our covetousness. And so when we should be attracted to the Lord, Satan or a demonic influence comes and tempts us with something of the world, something in our flesh. Is it possible that Satan himself can be personally involved when a given individual is being witnessed to? Sure, that's possible. Absolutely. But when something happens in the Bible, it doesn't mean it always happens in exactly that way. It depends, of course, on what's being taught. Verse 16. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, our dear friends who are, let's say, Southern Baptist, who believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, and they believe that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and we are eternally secure, they have an especially difficult time with these and many other similar passages in the Old Testament and in the Gospels because Jesus talks about those who are in him, like every branch in me, in me, that does not bear fruit will be cut off and burned. Jesus talks about those who lose their salvation. That's because he's speaking to the 12 tribes of Israel. He's speaking to those under the covenant of circumcision and the Mosaic law. And he says to them, you must endure to the end to be saved. And that is a common theme throughout the entire covenant, Israel's covenant of circumcision and the law. So in the kingdom, you have to endure to the end. In the body of Christ, as soon as you go through conversion, when you trust in Christ, then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, and you cannot lose your salvation, even to the extent where Paul writes that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself because we are in Christ, we're dead to the law, we're identified with him. Now, I don't think any of that means that in heaven and for all of eternity, God will have people there who hate him. Love still has to be freely given. But in this life, when we become a Christian, we are then sealed. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the down payment and the guarantee of our inheritance. So that is wonderfully comforting, and it's very different, and it's one of the main distinguishing characteristics of the body of Christ as compared to Israel, the covenant of grace as compared to the covenant of circumcision and the law. So the Baptist believes that the body of Christ began in Acts chapter 2 the typical Baptist. But they believe that, they give mental assent to that, but it doesn't mean anything in their theology. They don't actually apply that. 
So when Jesus is teaching to Israel, they do not say, unless they're in a corner and they have no other choice and they desperately grasp at straws, and then they'll say, well, that was before the body of Christ started. Or they'll say, that's before the church started. But what they should do is be consistent. And when Jesus is teaching in the Gospels, they should say, all this teaching is directed to Israel. It's all based on the gospel of the kingdom, circumcision and the Mosaic law, all of it. It's not based on grace because in the four gospels, not once does Jesus mention the word grace, not one time. But the word grace is replete through Paul's epistles. And it's scattered here and there through the rest of the Bible. But Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles to whom God gave the dispensation of grace for us. So the Baptist has a very hard time being consistent and actually believing what their doctrine is, that the body of Christ began in the book of Acts. They say Acts 2, and that tends to introduce additional confusion because God gave grace to Paul, so it's in Acts 9 where the body began. So they have the 12 apostles in the body of Christ, which is wrong. We say Acts 9, 12 out. The body of Christ began in Acts 9, and the 12 apostles are out of the body. They're not in the body. So if you don't understand that, then in hundreds of verses where Jesus is speaking to Israel, specifically about things that are true for Israel, the Baptist preacher says, well, this is not true for the body, so I've got to wrestle with this, and I have to make it say something it doesn't say. I have to stretch it to the breaking point. Verse 18. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Remember King Saul, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. He had a great start. All indications were that he was obeying God. In fact, God said to him through a prophet that your seed could have sat on the throne in Israel forever. That is, the Messiah could have come from Saul's descendants. But because he disobeyed God, because he rebelled when he was caught, so to speak, he didn't repent. He dug in in the sin. God cut him off. So Saul could be described as soil on whom the word of God was planted, and it began to grow, but then it withered and died. It doesn't mean that he never was part of God's covenant. It doesn't mean that. So the Baptist would say, not distinguishing the differences between law and grace, the Baptist is forced in every situation like in this parable, to say, well, they were never saved to start with. And that is really difficult to fit that in to every instance in the Bible under the covenant of circumcision where people were saved and then they rebelled and turned against God and God cut them off. Verse 20, But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. 
verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. So people think that they get away with things. But the Bible says your sin will find you out. Hi, this is Nicole McBurney again. We are out of time for today, so be sure to tune in next week to hear the rest of this study. If you want to help us stay on the air, and we could really use your support, you can sponsor a show at kgov.com sponsor. That's kgov.com sponsor. Or go to our store at kgov.com store to pick up some of our great resources. Thank you so much for all of your support, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow for Real Science Radio. God bless.